0: Turn with me in your Bibles to the start of our text this morning. We begin in chapter 4 of Esther, and if you're joining me in the blue Bibles in the seats in front of you, you can find the start of chapter 4 on page 412. We'll read in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. If you're anything like me, you're a sucker for a good story. Seriously, it doesn't matter the medium. It could be a blockbuster motion picture movie. It could be a multi-part epic novel. A really good quality factual recounting of some historical event. Or even one of my girls spinning a yarn about their schoolyard escapades. Generally, I'm all in. And if that story has the perfect balance of character development and story arc. And if that story has that one moment, you know the one. That one, everything comes down to this moment. Oh man, I'm in the front row with popcorn and I'm not leaving until the credits roll. There's something about that moment that captivates me. Something about when a story's main character is squarely facing down their fate, and when the chain of events has created this immense true pressure, and now we see what it is they're going to do. Brothers and sisters, we have such a story before us today. And you know these moments. They likely take up space in your memory, rent-free. It's the, I will take the ring to Mordor moment from the Fellowship of the Ring. It's the Allied forces in preparation on the eve of the D-Day invasion. Or even the moment in the movie Armageddon when NASA asks a crew of oil oil drillers to fly to space to blow up an an (laughs) asteroid. More importantly, and more seriously, as we work through these verses this morning, we're going to see direct parallels to the greatest lay-it-all-on-the-line moment of all time. In that moment belongs to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you'll hear me make direct comparisons and explain just why it is God put the book of Esther in the Bible for us to read. It's here to show us Jesus. Through Esther this morning, we will see her teach us about just what it is Christ came to accomplish. Before we get there, though, let me just take a moment to catch us back up to where we are in the book of Esther. Here's the situation we just read about at the start of chapter 4. Now, Brad did an excellent job giving us the complete historical and biblical backstory of most of our characters over the last two weeks. But let me briefly recap. God's chosen people, the Jews, they're exiled, and they're living scattered across the continent and no longer meaningfully occupying their promised land. In Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, and he had a younger cousin named Esther. Esther was an orphan, and so... Mordecai adopts Esther, and she grows up to be beautiful beyond all words. And the king, Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, he gets out of sorts with his queen, Queen Vashti, and he removes his favor from her. Now in order to get a new queen, he holds this kind of continent-wide beauty contest. And the result of this is that Esther is granted King Ahasuerus's favor. And there she is, the queen of a vast empire as an exiled Jew. And the king doesn't even know she's a Jew. Now, Haman was a vassal to the king. Haman is wicked, and he hates the Jews with all of his might. We learned last week in a masterful story arc that Haman is the descendant of Agag, and Agag a descendant of Amalek, a group cursed by God in Exodus 17, promising to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now, Brad traced this lineage back for us even further to Genesis 3, and showed us how Haman's bloodline really represents the seed of the serpent, and as such, was cursed to be forever in enmity with God's people. Haman is true to his lineage. He hates Mordecai. And because he hates Mordecai, Haman designs a strategy by which he will kill all the Jews in the kingdom, including Mordecai. The first five verses of chapter four we read moments ago finds Mordecai coming under the understanding and knowledge of what it is that is about to come. He's recently learned that Haman has sealed the fate of his people, and after hearing the decree stamped with the king's signet ring, Mordecai knows not just that their end is near, but he knows the very month and the very day at which they'll all be destroyed. And the clock is ticking. So why was Mordecai lamenting? Well, Mordecai was lamenting because he and his people are under a real, terrifying, and impending curse, a curse of death. And while this certainly serves a purpose in their time and for our story this morning, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to listen to what I have to tell you this morning as the plot of some distant and removed story. Please, don't divorce yourself from the truth contained not just in this story, But in the whole story and truth of this entire book. Today, you, I, here in Georgia, Vermont, we are by nature under this same death sentence. Since Genesis chapter three, through the sin of Adam, and because of our own sin, which comes from that, we are all under the curse of death. A real, terrifying, and impending curse to be separated from God eternally and condemned to a fate of certain death because of our sin. Just as they're under a curse, we are under a curse also. We see in the first five verses that Mordecai finds himself overcome with sorrow that comes from this knowledge. Now this is a familiar theme we see with God's chosen people in the Old Testament. The wearing of sackcloth and ashes is a cultural signal of the Jewish people when they are in low Mourningful deaths of despair. We see examples of this in Genesis chapter thirty seven, when Jacob tears his clothes and dons the uncomfortable garb after being misled that his beloved son Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. We see this again in Second Samuel chapter one, when David mourned the death of King Saul and Jonathan by doing just the same. This outward expression of discomfort is a picture into the torment and grief of the wearer's soul. And this, this is where we find Mordecai this morning. He's inconsolable, crying loudly in the midst of the city. Esther, his loving cousin and adopted daughter, when she learns of his lament, she sends him clothes, trying to just get him out of this outward sign of his inward grief. But he refuses. It's because Mordecai is in lament. Now, what is lament? Is it just a state of existence marked by extreme sadness? I would would argue that it is not. It's more. It's much more. And lament is a unique experience for God's chosen people. We find examples of lament throughout the the Bible, obviously, notably in the Psalms, and, of course, the entire book of Lamentation depicts the weeping of the Jews over the destruction of Jerusalem, and even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lamented in the final hours of his life. And what we know about lament, though, is, uh, from the Bible is that it is chiefly characterized not by the sadness and sorrows or cries of those who are gripped by it, but by their choosing to trust in, to, in God in the midst of it. Trusting in the Lord is the ultimate response to our sorrow. It is not the sadness or the bitterness or the wailing that we should remember about Mordecai. Oh, no, brothers and sisters what we should remember of Mordecai's lamentation is where it leads. And in the next verses, we will see his faith in the midst of his trial and his confidence in God's deliverance in the midst of his desperation. Let's read on in chapter 4, verses 6 through 14. Hatech went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So what do we see here? We see that moment, RGC. This is that one moment that I talked about. It just captivates me to the core. Everything has come down to this. We find Mordecai in the midst of his sorrow, finding out about the sealed fate of God's people living under a curse. And what does he do? He finds hope. Hope in the depths of his despair. And he turns and goes to the one person he knows closest to the king, his own adopted cousin. And he lays the whole situation out for her. He sends word to Esther saying, Esther, this is it. This is the moment everything, everything comes down to this. It's you. You have to go to the king, and you must tell him who you are, and you have to get a hearing with him and plead for your people. Mordecai doesn't have access to the king, but he knows that his salvation is within the king's power, and he knows the one person who can intercede on their behalf and seek it. Mordecai knows where the salvation lies, and he turns to it. Brothers and sisters, in this moment, Esther is the best hope that Mordecai has. But for us, Jesus is that hope. The only hope that we have, Jesus is the ultimate mediator and the only intercessor who can bring about fully the salvation from our deserved death sentence. In John 14, Jesus tells us this directly. He says he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For Esther, though... This task, Mordecai is asking of her, to go to the king, well, it's a bit easier said than done. Just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply walk into the presence of a great king without being called. And because of this, can you imagine the weight? Can you put yourself there in Esther's shoes? See, Esther knew that these were life and death stakes, not just for the Jews, her people any longer, but now... This has direct stakes for her. It says in the text, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them. And for her, it had been 30 days since she'd been called. Surely, before she knew how things would unfold, Esther would have wished it some other way. Just as Christ and Gethsemane prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Esther also knew this was not for her to decide. What she did have was the time and position given to her. Perhaps God had put her there, as Mordecai suggested, when he says to her, And who knows but that you have come to the, your royal position for such a time is this. Who knows? God knows. And we can know because the scriptures are here for us to see plainly God's sovereignty and provision. She came to the kingdom to save God's people, and it wasn't an easy path. No, it was a long and windy road. It was after the death of her parents and after probably the untenable and uncomfortable situation that that beauty contest involved. Getting her to a place in the king's court, separated from Mordecai, her only family, and in deep despair in the knowledge of his sealed fate, asked to lay her her life down in order to save her people. What we can see here is this is all evidence that God works all things together for the good of his people. Perhaps you've walked a windy road only to be put by God precisely where you are with what position you have for such a place as where you find yourself this morning, whatever the difficulty might be. And this doesn't really have to be a place with as much risk as being called to lay down your life. Maybe your situation has placed you in close proximity to non-believers, in order that you can share the gospel with them. Maybe it's placed you in a home group with someone in need so that you can love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe your situation finds you as the parents of difficult or unbelieving children so that you can work diligently in shepherding their hearts toward knowing and obeying God. Or maybe it's just placed you here this morning to hear God's word, to remind you of your sin and how God would have you respond to it. God knows. And one way or the other, to whatever modest or significant degree, he would have us be Christians, not of our times, but for our times, not of the world, but in the world, and even better, not of the world, but sent into the world on God's terms, for God's calling, and his purposes. Christians, we should have the Esther mindset that we're just about to see in her response, not shying away from risking it all for God's purposes, but giving ourselves over fully to the will of God. So how does Esther respond? Read with me verses 15 through 17. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is my second favorite moment, by the way. It's usually marked in the movies by that swell in the soundtrack, and coincidentally, usually goosebumps on my arms. <laughs> oh, man, it's glorious. She's placed into this time and this place, asked to face her nearly certain mortality through the faith of her adopted father, and she says, What? If I perish, I perish. Out of nothing but pure love for her people. If I perish, I perish. What does that mean? Well, it means that Esther did not necessarily know what the outcome of her act would be. She had no special revelation from God that we can read in the scriptures. She had to decide on the basis of her sanctified wisdom and her love for her people. She had to risk or run. She did not know how it would turn out, so she made her decision and she handed the results over to God. If I perish, I perish. And this was right. It's right to risk for the cause of God. Her response plays this out. The fasting for three days, it's representative of her resolve and her understanding that she's already under the sentence of death. Esther willingly lays down her life, just as Christ willingly laid down his life. He tells us this. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So let's watch Esther lay down her life. Read with me at the start of chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite to the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast, that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Oof. Can you imagine that moment? As Esther enters the throne room, I can only imagine her heart just pounding out of her chest. Certain that this moment would play out in just one of two ways. Either the scepter is extended to her, and she can plead for her people, or it isn't. And she will surely suffer the wrath of the king. Her resolve is sure, and she assumes the risk. She takes her people's curse upon herself. Essentially, she's been dead for three days already and is ultimately subjected to the same death sentence that all the other Jews spread across the province's face. Brothers and sisters, Christ died for us in the same way. He was crucified, dead, and buried. But through his resurrection, he took on atonement for our sins and satisfied the wrath that we all deserved. All while we were still sinners and under the curse. What's more, in the same way, we learn in Romans 8 that we are assured and encouraged to have utmost confidence in our true king's acceptance of our pleas, not because of anything other than Christ. And what is it about Christ Jesus that we're told buys us this assurance? Well, it's because unlike Esther, who, while, who although laid down her life and risked death, she was spared, Christ laid down his life and died. And we know, though, that his death was not the end of the story, just as we'll see in Esther that her spared life isn't the end of the story either. Let's go back quickly to verse 1 in chapter 5 for just a moment. As Esther prepares to enter the throne room, what do we see? On the third day. We Christians know the significance of this, don't we? The third day. This rings so loudly of Christ to us because we know that death wasn't the end of Christ's story. There is a difference. Esther risks her life knowing that she would live or die. The third day's outcome for Esther brought the possibility of some uncertainty, right? But whether she would live or die in that moment, and ultimately whether her people would live or die, there was no uncertainty with Christ, who did die, to be sure, but was raised up on the third day. And we're told that now he is at the Father's right hand interceding for us. We talked about Romans 8, but really the whole book of Romans is there for us, arguing the significance of Christ's death and resurrection and how it saves us. A few chapters earlier in Romans 4, Paul argues that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We should see the raising of the scepter by the king in the same way we view the raising up of Christ on the cross. This raising up language is not coincidental. We know what happened on the third day after Christ was risen up on the cross. He conquered death so that he could go to the Father with full payment for the sins of the world and be granted his petition for the people of God so do we see this connection here Christ our perfect mediator died for our sins and rose again so that we may be justified in union with him and is now today and forevermore pleading our case before the king he does this not on any of our works but by the laying down of his life a perfect life for the propitiation of our sins. Esther's intercession is effective, yes, but it's temporary. She only seeks to save the Jews from the king's decree, saving their lives in the moment so that they may live on in the land. Jesus' intercession can save us fully because his intercession is rooted in his death and resurrection. His salvation is final and saves us from the curse for eternity. In other words, Christ's life, ministry, and death, and the entirety of the gospel sets the foundation for Jesus' ongoing intercession. He pleads for us on the basis of who he is and what he has done, and he grants for us an eternal life, spared from the rightful judgment of our sins. So believers, how do we make use of this intercession? What does this mean for us? Mordecai, when in great need, sought the help of the intercession and a mediator, Queen Esther. How do we, on this side of the cross, in our great need, seek the help and intercession of a greater mediator, Jesus Christ? Well, the famous Puritan writer John Bunyan explains just how in his book, Christ the Complete Savior, he writes, "...let this doctrine give thee boldness to come to God. Shall Jesus Christ be interceding in heaven? Oh, then be thou a praying man on earth. Yea, take courage to pray." So if we are praying, what are the substances of those prayers? If we are praying to Christ, as Bunyan would say, with the faith that he is handing over our petitions to God, then we should consider what it is we're asking. And so, what is the substance of our petitions? Mordecai earnestly asked for salvation, for himself and for others. Is that what you're asking for? Is it for your continued sanctification, being made clean and purifying of your conscience from dead works? Or is it that you find yourself praying for creature comforts? Are we praying earnestly for the salvation of ourselves and others? Or are we praying simply for an easier life? May we all pray well to Jesus with confidence, knowing that Christ himself intercedes for us to bring fully both our salvation and sanctification. And to those outside of Christ this morning, what does this all mean for you? This means everything. It's everything, because there is no other contingency plan for your salvation. Mordecai didn't plead with Esther to intercede, all the while behind the scenes scheming or plotting some other way out of his impending death. He didn't hedge his bets and think, you know, maybe this just won't come to pass. Maybe I'll escape the decree, or maybe there's some other way I can get to safety. I'll just ride this one out, and something somewhere along the line will save me. It'll all work out in the end. No, no. Mordecai didn't do that, and you shouldn't do that either. This curse is real, and you cannot, through your works, escape your coming judgment in your life of sin. There's no other reprieve from your death sentence, nothing aside from faith. Faith that we have in an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's Act 4.12. Christ lays down his life for his sheep, but he tells us also that he has other sheep, not of this fold, and he is calling to them also. Anyone outside of Christ's fold this morning, I implore you, listen for his voice. He is calling. So what about Esther's plea? Will it be granted? Well, rest assured, Brad is going to bring us the outworking fully of Esther's pleas in the coming weeks, but just know and trust God's provision for his chosen is assured. We can see here early in chapter 5 that King Ahasuerus extends the golden scepter, and not only does he again look upon Esther with favor, he raises the scepter and fulfills the law, giving her access, sparing her life, and more importantly, he assures her twice that her pleas will be granted for up to half his kingdom. Christ has this same assurance. God will certainly... Grant Christ's pleas. Can you imagine Mordecai's relief at learning the news of the golden scepter being raised? I no doubt believe that his rejoicing was as outward as his lament was. He cried in the city in the depths of his despair. I can only imagine that he danced in the city at the news of the raising of the scepter. Believers, I wonder if you find yourself rejoicing like Mordecai this morning. And where are you in Mordecai's story arc? Are you in your trials, having made the turn to faith in the Lord in your lament? In your faith, are you living in the light of the relief that the curse is now lifted and our salvation assured? Brothers and sisters, believers, non-believers, leave this morning having heard that Esther loved her people so much that she was willing to lay down her life to save them. But leave knowing that Jesus did the same. More still, leave knowing not only did he face death, he died and yet conquered death. Through all the comparisons we made this morning between Esther and Jesus Christ, there is this most staggering difference. Esther laid down her life to bring about a temporary salvation for her people for a time. Christ, however, our perfect mediator, not just risked death, but did die. Not to bring about just a singular salvation from one particular judgment, but for an utmost and everlasting salvation. Esther's intercession serves to point us to Jesus, who is the perfect intercessor, who died and was raised up on the third day, and now intercedes for us, always, to save us from our curse. Pray with me. Father, we thank you this morning for your saving and redeeming grace. We thank you for your word and the picture of Christ we see in these verses. May your will be done in our lives and in the lives of those who not yet know you. May you call them to your fold and save them from their sins. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.